This is a podcast from Minute Media. and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Today we are recording from the brand new Surely You Can't Be Serious Productions studio. I'm very excited to do this. We're going to be talking about The Godfather, The Godfather 2, and Goodfellas. I know this is like the big mafia mashup right here, but you know we're missing a major opportunity, D. What? We are recording at our new Surely You Can't Be Serious studio, but we should be recording in my bedroom <laughs> where my wife sleeps and my children play with their toys. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. We are diving in today to some of the best movies ever made. Literally. Literally. Like, you you look at any source and The Godfather will be number one or number two. I think AFI had it at number two after Citizen Kane. You look on IMDb, it's number two after The Shawshank Redemption. Then we have The Godfather 2, which is almost always right after. And then in a not-too-distant third place in most of those ratings, you're going to hit The Goodfellas too. That's exactly right. And you've got cast members intermingled. You've got Scorsese intermingled a little bit. A little bit. So, a little bit. <laughs> the quotes are going to be flying. <laughs> Didn't mean to insult you, you know, a little bit. A little bit. Okay. Keep it a little bit. <laughs> Okay, everybody, if this is your first time with us, please, just right now, look at your podcast app and hit that follow button. And if you are coming back, do us a favor and give us a review. And if it's a five-star review, great. Leave the gun, take the cannoli, five-star review. Yes. All right. Are we ready to jump into these three iconic movies? I'm ready. Okay, let me just say this. There is no way that we could do a sufficient podcast on all of these movies in just two episodes. You really could do like a season on. You could, yes. You could do probably multiple seasons on these movies given how good they are, how iconic they are. We couldn't possibly. So, David Wright, I'm speaking to you. I'm not going to cover everything that's here. <laughs> But we are going to keep this fun and casual and talk about what we love about these movies. Let's do it. Okay. So our story starts back at the turn of the century. Young couple of Italian immigrants leave their home of Corleone, Italy. A John Girardi and his wife, Kate. Okay. And they travel to New York. They have a daughter who marries another Sicilian in town, who they have a son. Ultimately, the husband leaves, and the grandparents, John and Kate, are left to raise this young Sicilian man who ultimately will get cast in a part where he has the last name of the town that his grandparents came from. Okay. You got me. Al Pacino's grandparents, both from Corleone, Italy. Don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Get out of town. I am not kidding. He had a poor background growing up. Like I said, his parents divorced and he was raised by his grandparents. He dropped out of school when he was 17 and worked as a janitor, messenger clerk, a busboy. Sometimes he was homeless, but 
He wanted to be an actor. His grandparents supported him in this. And he caught his big break in 1968 when he got to play a street punk in the play called The Indian Wants the Bronx. He would be in a movie that same year. Okay. And then virtually nothing else. A complete unknown. But somehow he caught the eye of a gentleman named Francis Ford Coppola who was convinced this is the man who needs to star in my epic movie, The Godfather. Okay. All right. The book was released a year after this first play that Al Pacino did, and it wasn't originally going to be titled The Godfather. A few years earlier, this kind of heavyset Italian guy shows up in the office of Robert Evans, a producer for Paramount Pictures, yes. which had recently been purchased by Gulf and Western. This was like the first of the big conglomerates purchasing movie studios. This was a time, just think about this for right now, this is early, late 60s, early 70s. This was a time when people thought the movies were dead. Like they didn't think any more good movies were coming out. TV was kind of ruling the world at that point. Sure. So Sound familiar? Yeah, kind of like now. Yeah, now, right? Yeah, and this set the stage for what would become the new Hollywood. The new Hollywood would include George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, and a couple of those guys. George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola went to film school together. Decided to start their own production company, Zotrope. At the time that they formed this company, they were unknowns. As it turned out, this business that's run by artists wasn't doing too well. Exactly. They had gone in debt making THX 1138, which was George Lucas's film. Yeah. Back to our heavy guy who's walking into the office of Robert Evans at Paramount Studios. Right. So he walks in and he's got this 40 to 50 page treatment under his arm for a novel. And he says, look, I need money. (laughs) <laughs> I like to gamble, yeah. and I have some debts that I have to pay. Would you be interested in optioning a novel that I haven't even written yet? And Robert Evans is like, who are you? <laughs> and he tells him, I'm Mario Puzo. Yeah, I'm friends with... He's like, oh, you're that guy who I agreed to meet as a favor to a friend. Okay, yeah. Uh, what? Let me look at it. I don't think he even read it. It was just like, let's get this guy out the door. How about... Well, Mario Puzo owed about $10,000, so that sounded about right to him. Mario Puzo owed $10,000 to mob guys, (laughs) like leg breakers. He was an excellent author, but it takes more than being good to be successful. So Puzo had written this book called The Fortunate Pilgrim, which, according to my sources, was incredibly good, incredibly (laughs) intelligent, incredibly well-written, and it sold about five copies. I heard this, yes. And what happened was there was a character that had not much more than a cameo appearance in the movie that was a Godfather-esque type of character. And everyone that read his book said, you should do something with that guy. That's a stroke of genius to find accidentally a character and somebody says, you know what? That dude is interesting. Let's go with that. So Robert Evans says, sure, sounds good. I want the movie rights too. Great. See you later. Never expected to see anything from him again until the novel gets written. As I said, it wasn't supposed to be The Godfather initially. You know what the name of it was at first? No. Mafia. (laughs) That word comes into play here shortly. Yes. So he writes The Godfather and The Godfather explodes. It becomes this huge success that now Paramount now has the property rights to. 
That's a great story. A few months later, Mario Puzo calls Robert Evans back and he says, would it be a breach of our contract if I change the name of the book? And he was like, I don't even remember. (laughs) Who are you? Who is this? (laughs) And he says, I want to call it The Godfather. So the interesting thing to me, though, is that Paramount is now holding the the rights to this novel that's incredibly popular. You can't just sit on it. You have to make a movie. Right. But they had just come off a huge mafia failure in a movie that starred Kirk Douglas as this mafia leader called The Brotherhood. Yes. Have you ever seen that? I have not seen it. I haven't seen it either, but I heard it's junk there have been mob movies around since movies began i like, mean it was it was a, it was a go-to you had james cagney you had edward g robinson exactly but in the late 60s early 70s nobody was interested in any of the mob movies because here's the problem they were all the mob was just a bunch of greaser guys who deserved whatever they got there was no redeeming value about any of the mobsters sure it was all the guys like yeah same yeah yeah so they're sitting on top of this beautiful piece of property. They say, okay, we got to figure out a way to make this a movie. The guy from Gulfstream and Western or whatever it was, his name was Bluthorn. He was the Swedish guy. He was like, no, no, no more gangster movies, no more mafia movies. I don't want to do that. And then we're like, but this is The Godfather. This has been like weeks and weeks on the national bestseller list. He's like, if you can make it fast while it's still on the bestseller list, then we can get something done. Fast and cheap. Fast and cheap. Original budget, $2.5 million. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Even for the 70s, that's really low. That's crazy low. And so they're like, okay, we need a producer. We need a director. They go literally in the parking lot. <laughs> in the parking lot, they're like, hey, there's Al Ruddy. Hey, he's, you. Hey, that guy. He's good. He did the Hogan's Hero stuff. He He's <sighs> a guy who's got his business together. Let's get him. And they're like, Al Ruddy, do you want to do this? He's like, I love that book. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So Al Ruddy's this guy who's like 6'4", Jewish guy. He has got all kinds of personality. You listen to this guy talk. He He's still around. Now, wait a minute. still around. This guy is a Jewish man who sold the idea of a sitcom in which American POWs are in a Nazi war camp. Yes. Yes. I mean, he's moxie all over the place, right? You know what's really funny to Jewish people? Nazis. Hitler. (laughs) I know Nazis. I don't. If you are making, if they are the buffoons of the show, then you are bound to have success. And Hogan's Heroes was a success, right? It's a funny show. So they say, hey, Al, how about you produce this? All right, who's directing? Uh, I don't know. Right. And so they say, hey, we know this guy, Francis Coppola. Um, Let's see if he's interested in it. And so they say, hey, Francis, we'd like you to direct this. And Francis says, uh, no, thanks. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, what? We're offering you the opportunity to direct a movie that's on the bestseller list. And he's like, yeah, you know what? I couldn't get past page 50. This graphic sex scenes were a little too much for me. And I just, I'm not interested in that kind of stuff. And they're like, okay. And they start looking around. He goes back to Zotrope again. He talks to George Lucas about what's going on. And George Lucas is like, what? <laughs> we are in debt $600,000. Could you just direct the movie for the money, maybe? How about you just... Get us a little cash before we go belly up. Francis Ford Coppola, incredibly gifted director. Not known for his business sense, though. (laughs) 
You know some other names that were associated with this? Yeah. The one that stands out to me was Peter Bogdanovich. That would have been interesting. Twelve guys passed on this. Yeah, so it's interesting, too, that they're going to the Roger Corman schools, right? Bogdanovich was a Roger Corman guy. Francis Ford Coppola was a Roger Corman guy. I know when we talk about casting, we're going to be talking about Jack Nicholson, who is also a Roger Corman guy. They were looking for bargain basement deals at this point. Yeah. And those are the guys that they were looking at. And Black Friday sales right here. Right. So as this novel has gained in popularity, ultimately Francis Ford Coppola does decide to direct. He takes the novel. This is so awesome. He takes the novel and he takes he cuts out every single page. And he puts the small novel size pages within the borders of a larger 8 by 11 piece of paper with the middle cut out so you can see both sides. Right. And then he, he's made notes in the margins of the novel and now he's making notes in the margins of the big pieces of paper and it's all about how to direct each and every scene that he has planned for this movie. So the guys from Paramount, they want to make it a modern take. They want to make it in 1970s and they want to, they want to base it in Kansas City. I, see, this is crazy to me because it's cheaper to go to the Midwest. Yeah. So, hey, great idea. Let's go to Kansas City yeah. or St. Louis. Sure. You'll get all kinds of Italian extras in, you know, the middle of the country. You know what they say in Kansas City all the time? Bada bing! <laughs> Brains, I love your college jacket. <laughs> so, Francis Ford Coppola, once again, banging heads with these guys. And he's like, no, guys, no. This needs to be period piece, needs to take place in the 50s, and we need to do it in New York. And Italy. And Italy. Fortunately, there weren't that many scenes. I mean, it was mostly wilderness. <laughs> there a restaurant, a mansion, and some grassy knolls. Right. Those grassy knolls could have been filmed in, outside of Kansas City. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So they agree. They're like, okay, Francis, that's fine. That's fine. We will shoot 1950s, New York. There's only one problem. You know who lives in New York? The mafia, the mafia. guys. <laughs> that's right, the mafia guys. So in the 19, early 1970s, a guy named Joe Colombo had started what was called the Italian-American Anti-Defamation League, which was basically against all these mob movies that we had been talking about against probably the godfather that had just come out because he felt like it portrayed all Italians as these hitmen, mob boss, connected guys, and he wanted to say that not all Italians are like that. They went after Alka-Seltzer because they had a commercial where the guy's like, that's a spicy, spicy meatball. meatball. I remember those commercials. They yes. went after those guys. Yes. Mamma mia, that's a spicy meatball. There's only one problem. <laughs> Joe Colombo was the boss of one of the families in the mafia in New York at the time. We're all a part of the same hypocrisy. <laughs> <laughs> all Italians are not mobsters. I know I am, but not all Italians are. So this became a really big movement. They had a large following, which I have to think has something to do with extortion racketeering that the mob was involved in. Hey, you going to join the club or what? <laughs> Meet my friend Rocco over here to help you make a decision. Whenever it was announced that they would be trying to film this movie, The Godfather, in New York City, the Italian-American Anti-Defamation League said, no, no way, we're not going to let this happen. Yeah, they had rallies. They even had death threats. They had to clear Paramount Studios twice. Al Ruddy 
was receiving phone calls that were, were threatening and mysterious. One day he lets his secretary, his assistant, drive his car home. That night in her driveway, they blow out the windshield of the car. I mean, this was this was serious stuff. And I'll mention this right now. There is a series that's coming out. We said, okay, what are we going to do for our season three opener? We did Batman because the Batman movie's coming out. We're doing Godfather because it's the 50th anniversary of the Godfather right now, right? 50 yeah. years ago, this month, the Godfather came out. March 24th, 1972. As it turns out, some other people noticed that this was 50 years since the release, and so they put together a TV series that's about to come out called The Offer. So, met with all of this opposition, Al Ruddy goes to Mario Puzo and is like, hey, can you talk to these guys? You're Italian? And he's like, they hate me. I am not, no, there is no chance that I'm going to go talk to any of these guys. You think guys. I'm going to get mixed up with these guys? No right. way. So this is the moxie that Al Ruddy says. He says, you know what? I'm going to go, I'm going to go talk to them. These guys have been giving him death threats. He knows who they are. And so he's like, let's just go in. Let's just talk to him. So they go in, they meet in Joe Colombo's office, and he brings the script. Already brings the script. He says, listen, I want you to just read this. Let's talk about it. Let's let's see what we can do. Because we're not out to paint all Italians as bad guys. And Colombo's like, okay, okay. And Already's like, listen, I've got the script. Read it. Just read it and tell me if there's something you don't like and let us talk. Let's talk about it. And Columbo's got his, you know, couple of associates with him. <laughs> and so he's like, okay. And he opens the page and he's like, fade in. What does fade in mean? <laughs> and already's like, okay. All right. Well, that's when the black goes to picture. What is fade Siri, in? yes. Right. What does fade in mean? Thank you, Siri. <laughs> <laughs> And so he gets frustrated within the first page trying to figure out this dialogue. He hands it to one of the associates who's like, I don't know what this is about. Read this, man. <laughs> and so and so Joe Colombo looks at Al Ruddy and he looks at his guys and he says, you know what? I think I like the, I like this guy. Do you guys like this guy? Do we like this guy? And they're like, yeah, I like this guy too. And he goes, you know what? I like you. We like you. Just do me this favor. Don't say the word mafia anywhere in a movie and we'll we'll be cool with it and so already it's like i can do that that's a deal that is a deal by the way one of the members of the italian american civil rights league frank sinatra naturally so as it turns out mafia appeared in one spot in the entire script and it was i don't care how many dago guinea wop mafia greaseball goombas come out of the woodwork and so he erased mafia and then it became <laughs> i don't care how many dago guinea wop greaseball goombas come out of the woodwork i'm german irish well t- let me tell you something <laughs> my crowd mcfriend <laughs> That's so, such an easy, you just cross out the word no mafia and there you go. with WAP, Goomba, Greaser, Guinea, none of it. <laughs> mafia was the issue and they took it out. And Since he hadn't read the script, he didn't know how many times it was in there. One little line. One little line. Boom, we're good to go. It's an offer I can't refuse, right? Love it. So the next day, he thinks, oh my gosh, I've narrowly averted massive trouble. Everything's going to be good. And... Joe Colombo calls him back and says, hey, I just want to touch base with you on something if you'll come by the office. He goes by his office. He walks in the door and all of a sudden he is confronted by a horde of newspaper reporters. And they've got it all set up 
and he has no already has no idea what has that what has been set up but he's there and he's got Joe Colombo and all of these other associates and Joe Colombo is letting all of the newspapers know that he and the rest of his associates have approved the script and that can the movie can be made and already realizes what's going to happen and sure enough it happens the newspapers immediately come out and say this movie is getting made because of ties to the mafia wow Wow, that's impressive. And you know, some of the other things that happened because of that? Yeah. So because the Italian-American Civil Rights League is involved in the production, you have this guy, Lenny Montana, who's hanging around all the time, who actually worked as an enforcer in the Colombo crime family. So Francis Ford Coppola is like, dang, this guy's huge, right? He's big, he's strong, he's intimidating. Yeah. Maybe we should offer him a part. He is Luca Brasi. Yes. They hire an actual they mobster to hire play an actual mobster, a mobster. To play. Yeah, because what happens is the mafia, now that they've okayed the film, they're like hanging around and they're guys who are like, I like to be in a movie. I mean, you should have the real guys in the movie, right? Here I am. Just uh, hire me. I mean, yeah. Right here. <laughs> and so when the news comes out that this movie is tied to the mafia now, instead of being uh, banned by the mafia... Gulf and Western stock takes like a six bajillion dollar dip. People are like, whoa, this is this is bad. And so Gulf and Western is furious, but somehow the movie still gets made. It's incredible. By the way, I want to circle back real quick on Luca Brasi and uh, Lenny Montana. Okay. Okay. So Lenny Montana yeah. was involved with the Co- the Colombo crime family since the '60s, as in Joe Colombo, the Colombo family. Exactly. Yes. His talents were mostly as enforcer and arsonist. <laughs> What are your skills? I was an arsonist. Once he allegedly tied a tampon to the tail of a mouse, dipped it in kerosene, lit it on fire, and let the mouse run like crazy through the building to set it on fire. That, that's actually pretty ingenious, honestly. That's pretty smart. I wasn't expecting that from from Joe Montana, Luca Brasi. Yeah. There's much more to tell, but we only have a little limited amount of time. Let's move on to The Godfather 2. He taught me, keep your friends close. But your enemies closer. The Godfather Part Two actually took pieces from the Godfather novel. All the stuff that flashes back to Italy, the Robert De Niro stuff. Yep. That's all from the Godfather novel. All of the Michael parts were completely Francis Ford Coppola. It was all his writing. Now, Francis Ford Coppola, during the making of this movie, and we'll get back to it in a minute, but he was in fear of getting fired every single day. And there was a key moment that changed that concern, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But at that moment, when he realized things were good and that this looked like it was really going to be a success, they started working on The Godfather 2. Now, the problem was the studio wanted him to direct, but he didn't want to direct The Godfather 2. And so he's like, hey, I got this guy. He'd be perfect to direct. His name is Martin Scorsese. Yeah, that's a really cool story. And they're like, nope. No. Not good enough. So he said, okay, I'll direct but I've got some conditions. Right. So here are his conditions. Number one, he wants to be able to direct his own movie, his own script of the conversation. Logical. He wanted to be allowed to direct a production for the San Francisco Opera. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) The opera? (laughs) And he wanted to be allowed to write the screenplay for The Great Gatsby, 1974. Okay. Okay. All prior to production for the sequel of a Christmas 1974 release. Oh, by the way, no Robert Evans or I'm out. 
Wow. So Robert they, Evans is one of the head guys at Paramount. So if you've if you're familiar with the kid stays in the picture, that's Robert Evans. He's an interesting guy, interesting Hollywood story guy, but apparently he and Francis Ford Coppola did not get along. They had a lot of shouting matches here. Yeah. Oh, you know what else? There's another thing that kind of went along in this same area. Yeah. Every day they picked him up in this crappy station wagon, took him to the set. Uh-huh. And he's like, This car sucks. <laughs> so, 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 so. So, so, so. That's right, sucks. <laughs> But they said, uh, he said, if the movie does over $50 million, I want a new car, right? Right. And so they made that agreement. And then actually the beat up crappy car makes an appearance in American Graffiti. Oh, nice. Which is kind of cool. Zotrope movie? I believe so. Okay. I don't know how Fran- I don't know how George Lucas is getting out on not having him. I know, right? Okay. Hey, you know, that just the demands made by Francis Ford Coppola, it's like the exaggeration of somebody who knows they're on the spot. Like in the end of Sneakers, you're like, okay, I want the conversation made. I want the Great Gatsby. I want pizza for a year. (laughs) You know, it's just all these weird things that you're trying to come up with on the spot. Lifetime supply of chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) I want M&M's, all the green ones, nothing else. (laughs) So they agree to his conditions. He becomes the director for his own script, which is partly influenced by the original novel the godfather okay that part where we see we hear vito corleone's backstory and then his own dissension the fall if you will of michael corleone into the very depths of hell and it's such a great back and forth to see the rise of one and the fall of the other he did a Brilliant job weaving these two storylines together. The only thing I can compare the the Corleone character arc to, yeah, I mean, you got to think George Lucas used it for Darth Vader, right? He was kind of Darth Vader, wasn't he? He was the golden child who ultimately ended up being the ultimate villain. He's the chosen one and went pure evil, all in. Wow, the darkest point. Yeah. Um, I'll say this now. There is a Godfather 3. It's not as bad as Superman 4, but I really didn't care for it, and I didn't do any lookbacks at all on that. So here's the interesting thing about the Godfather 3. I've never seen it. I can't yeah. comment on it. Yeah. Here's what I do know. Yeah. I know Robert Duvall wasn't in it. Right. And I know that Francis Ford Coppola's daughter was kind of the main character, and I know that that didn't really go so well. Yeah. And I also know that it went head-to-head in the theaters against Goodfellas. And there you have it. Yeah. The interesting thing to me about The Godfather Part Two is this is a time when sequels aren't really ever made. There the- has been no movie before this movie in the U.S. that had... Part, Part two. two. Not one. It, that's incredible. That was one of his conditions. I want to. I want it to be called Part Two because people need to know that it is tied to the novel. Yeah. And and ever since then, every summer we have Part Two, Part Three, Part Four of something else. And the beautiful. I mean, he does it in a beautiful way because the bulk of the movie takes place in Nevada, right? I mean, they've they've moved over to Las Vegas. They're doing an entirely different style. But the very first scene is a continuation of the very last scene of The Godfather. Really? That takes place in Lake Tahoe, right? No. The very first scene, even like before the like as the credits are rolling at the beginning, the opening credits, it shows the guy kissing his ring as he sits in the chair just like the end of the godfather all right okay yeah interesting and then once we do the credits then it goes to lake Lake tahoe Tahoe. okay okay so obviously in between these two movies we have the success of the godfather right 
Yeah. I mean, people are lined up in the streets to go watch this movie. And I think largely in part for all the media attention it got because of it running head to head with the mob and then seeming to be in cahoots with the mob. This is like some of the other movies we've covered where there's just like a mega success, right? Yeah. Like a shocking mega success. It's like a nuclear bomb. The budget was right around, you know, six, seven million dollars. Yes. In 1972, this made $287 million. Kind of the time for Francis to make some demands so that he can direct his opera. (laughs) I want chicken nuggets every day on the set with the honey mustard. (laughs) Just in comparison, Goodfellas made $47 million. Wow. Big difference, right? Yeah, not a huge success. Now, there were a few new cast members. There were... a couple of cast members that kind of got left out or were portrayed by different actors. We can get into all of that in casting here in just a little bit. But the important thing to remember is that The Godfather became a world-changing movie. And when I say that, I mean there were things that happened in The Godfather that the mafia didn't do but then started doing. They adopted them. Like, The Godfather was not a term that was used very often, but after this movie, everybody in the mafia was started to throw that term around as the leader of a particular family. It's funny to see art imitate life, and then life then imitate that art. It's crazy. You know, just one of the things you're talking about there... Mario Puzo didn't know a lot about the mafia. He wasn't really involved in any of that. He was just kind of writing about a subject he didn't know a whole lot about. Yeah. So one of the mistakes that he made that sort of became changed in culture, the main character of The Godfather is Don Corleone. Yes. But in real life, the mafia, they would call him more Don Vito. Right. And since the movie then changed that, then everybody else sort of adopted that. There's an entire book that's devoted to this called The Godfather Effect. Gave us a pretty good pizza place, too. <laughs> Godfather's Pizza was good. <laughs> That's a spice of meatball. Huh? <laughs> okay, do we want to go into the production of Goodfellas? Yeah. Goodfellas came out, as we said, in 1990, right? Yes, it did. Now, we know that The Godfather took place in 1950s. Yes, right? right. And we know that The Godfather 2, late 50s, early 60s for Michael's story. And then we've got like 20s and 30s for Vito's story, right? Right. So you've got 20s, 30s, 40s a little bit, 50s, and 60s. And in these, you know, the main part of The Godfather 1 is the 50s. Well, that is where Goodfellas starts. Starts with the life of a kid who all his life... He wanted to be a gangster. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. So, Nicholas Pileggi wrote a book in 1985 called Wise Guy. And this book was based largely on the events of the lives of Henry Hill, Jimmy Burke, and Tommy DeSimone. Yes. So, Henry Hill was a guy who had really lived the mob life. He had, as a young kid, started to work for mobsters in the 50s and 60s. He uh, ultimately went and served in the military where he also ran scams and ultimately came back and became a part of the mafia there. But he was a guy who was half Sicilian, 
and half Irish. So he never had a chance of becoming a made man, becoming a leader. He was always going to be a soldier, but he was fine with that. That still meant that he could live the life. And he did live that life. And ultimately it went very badly for him. And he had to go into the witness protection program. For a while. For a little while. (laughs) Yeah. So the cool thing to me about the the birth of Goodfellas, the movie, right? According to Pileggi, Scorsese just cold calling, right? Yeah. Just called him out of the blue. Yep. Hi, uh, Nick. This is uh, Marty Scorsese. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, what? And he told him, listen, I've been waiting for this book my entire life. Yeah. I want to make this a movie. I mean, keep in mind, Martin Scorsese, like Francis Ford Coppola, had gr- he's Italian. They had both grown up in New York. Now, Martin Scorsese lived in an area that was less mob-involved than than many other folks, but he still understood that perspective. He still understood the Italian way of life. I mean, it's important to note, I mean, why the mafia exists in the first place, okay? So Sicily is this little island that's off the boot of Italy, and it's it's gone through several countries, taken over power there, and ultimately it ends up kind of in this feudal system. There's a big revolution, and then the the serfs the, the the peasants end up getting a bunch of property and owning stuff but there's no real police force there right and so what happens is these peasants start hiring thugs to protect their farmland and eventually the thugs go you know we've got the most power here why are we letting them be the boss we're going to be the boss and so what they do is they have these peasants pay them for protection yeah and that is the that is the extortion racket that the mafia itself is based upon, right? Right. And so you get these little families who have become the police force. And they're essentially policing themselves, but it grows into a system where, yes, we're going to protect you from us. You know, if you don't pay us, then you're going to reap the wrath of hell. But... If you do pay us, we'll not attack you and we will protect you. But it is largely based on things that are against the law. Right. Well, when the turn of the century happens, we have a huge amount of Sicilians and Italians who come over to the United States and they bring that way of life with them because they are not given good jobs. They are not given good places to live. And so they bring that same system with them. And that is how you get the beginnings of the mafia in the United States. Then something happens in the early 20th century. There is a push against alcohol in the United States. It is amazing how much Americans used to drink, comparatively (laughs) speaking to now. Surprisingly, they drank more in the early 1900s than they do now, and it became an issue. And so a lot of women grouped together and they said, we want to outlaw alcohol. And ultimately, they got an amendment to the Constitution passed, which said the United States is now dry. Prohibition. Well, this was just the opportunity that the mafia needed to make themselves extremely wealthy and extremely powerful. Yeah. By the time Prohibition is repealed in 1933, it's too late. They now have their fingers in everything illegal, and they are far too powerful to fight. They they have judges on the payroll, they have police on the payroll, they have city attorneys on the payroll, and they are a force to be reckoned with that continues to grow and grow. And that's a lifestyle that looks good to Henry Hill. Yeah, he always wanted to be a gangster. Right. (laughs) So anyway, so 
Pileggi calls Martin Scorsese. Yes. Martin Scorsese had sworn off gangster movies. But then he reads this book and he's like, man, this book is fantastic. Yeah. So he call, cold calls Pileggi and says, this is the book I've been waiting for my entire life. And Pileggi says, this is the phone call I've been waiting for my entire life. To me, the interesting thing is, you know, Martin Scorsese in the late 80s. Yeah was kind of persada non grata because of The Last Temptation of Christ. In the 70s, he had done Taxi Driver. 1980, I think, was when Raging Bull came out. I mean, I got to say this. I don't think Robert De Niro would have been Robert De Niro without Martin Scorsese, and I don't think Martin Scorsese would have been Martin Scorsese without Robert De Niro. Sure. I mean, they were they made each other. Speaking of, yeah. I mean, there's so much we could talk about, but in our home state, just... An hour or so away, they're shooting Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, with Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro. My sister said that she her friend rented her house out to Robert De Niro. Get out of town. In Tulsa. That's yes. fantastic. So anyway. That's a long relationship right there. Yeah. 76 to now, that's 46 years. Scorsese's still making great movies. Yep, including Gangs of New York, The Departed. He does have a flavor for the gang, mafia, mob style. By the way, small side note here, Goodfellas was originally titled Wise Guy, but I think there was a movie in 1987 called Wise Guys that was kind of a little bit close to that time period. It's TV series. TV Wise series? Guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it had uh, Ken Wall and uh, Jonathan Banks in it. They didn't want to be associated with that in any way, so they changed the name to Goodfellas, which they talk about in the movie. It's, you know, that guy, he's a good fella. He's a good guy. Okay, so Nicholas Pileggi was a crime reporter, right? And that's how he got his material for Wise Guy by chronicling the life of Henry Hill. Interesting note, at, on the cover of Wise Guy, it's, it says Nicholas Pileggi, Wise Guy, life in a mafia family. And then, you know, they always have the review quotes at the bottom. Yeah. It says, a fascinating book, Mario Puzo. <laughs> that's cool. So he writes Wise Guy. He gets this call from Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese says, hey, I want you to work with me together to make this into a script that I can make the movie for. Yes. I mean, what else do you say to that? But of yes. course, yeah. And then, of course, he also ends up writing the book that the movie Casino is based upon as well. Did you know that? Nicholas Pledgey wrote that book? Yeah. He wrote a book called Casino, Love and Honor in Las Vegas, and he helped write the screenplay for Casino, both uh, obviously of which were directed by Martin Scorsese. Wow. That's a cool movie. I like that movie a lot. Yeah. So they work on the script together. I, I love this. As part of the script writing process, Martin Scorsese will write down the name of songs that he wants in the scene. That's fantastic to me. Like he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of what obviously is a lot of music, but we can say for this one is classic rock best. Definitely. I know he uses In the Nick Kiss Me. I know he uses Layla. And then uh, he always uses Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones, which is one of my favorite Stones songs. Okay. I know there's lots more to tell, but I really would like to jump into casting. <laughs> well, let's jump into casting. Let's flip back to The Godfather, and we'll talk casting of this incredible movie. already talked about the fact that Al Pacino is a basically an unknown actor at this point, right? 
Yes. And of course the studios didn't want him. But I think my favorite story in this vein is whenever Francis Ford Coppola is saying, I would like for Marlon Brando to play the title role. And they were like, no freaking way. (laughs) No, 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 no. Not just no, but heck no. You got guys who are interested in it like Orson Welles. Yeah, Orson Welles, Laurence Olivier, Ernest Borgnine, Burt Lancaster, George C. Scott, Anthony none Quinn. Of these, none of these guys are screaming Italian to me. <laughs> right. No, none of them. Well, right? if, I mean, Marlon Brando's Dutch. Right, right. You got English, you got Dutch, you got German. I, it's there's a, lot of, there's a lot of not Italian there. Right. But the guy that Francis Ford Coppola wants is Brando. Right. And so... The president of Paramount (laughs) says to him, look, I am telling you, there is no way that Marlon Brando will ever be in this movie. To which Francis Ford Coppola then throws himself onto the floor (laughs) and just lays there like a baby and is just like, oh... Well, why don't even know why we're even talking if you're not even going to listen to me? And if there's just nothing that I can say to make you think that there might even be a possibility that Brando might be in this movie. They're like, okay, okay, we've got some conditions. If you meet these conditions, we'll consider having Brando in the movie. And so they give these ridiculous conditions. Yeah. So the conditions are, number one, he's got to do a screen test. We're talking about Marlon Brando. Greatest actor of the generation. car named Desire. Right. He's freaking Marlon Brando. He's an icon. (laughs) So, screen test? Got to do a screen test. Yeah. Number one hurdle, the studio knows, never going to get past Hey, Marlon, I'm this director who's never directed anything you've ever heard of in your life. You've never heard of me, but I need you to do a screen test (laughs) for me. Could you come in and do some screen tests for me? Yes. So, number one, screen test. Number two, lower salary. He's got to do it for free, is what they told him. Oh, my free. gosh. Free 93. Free. Yeah, if you can get him to do it for free, then we're in. <laughs> oh, and also, he's got to post a bond in case he screws up production or filming in any way. Well, he was notorious for bad behavior. Just being a he's, terrible he's, he's person a, on set. He, yeah. he's, he is a prankster, and he is also a temperamental, obnoxious guy, and he would just screw stuff up. You can act like a man! What's the matter with you? Is this how you turn down a Hollywood Pinocchio that uh, cries like a woman? <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? Right. Right. You will remember from our Superman episode where he suggested to to Dick Donner <laughs> that maybe a green suitcase could play the part and he could just do the voice for Jarrell. Yeah. A green suitcase. Yeah. Or a cheeseburger. And it had been a long time since Marlon Brando had a hit, right? Yeah. Mutiny on the Bounty, I think, was 1962. That's nearly 10 years prior to. Yeah. And he's he's bulging up a little bit. Yeah, he got a little thicker. They also asked him to lose weight. Yeah. You know, go talk to Marlon and tell him to lose some weight. Right. So Coppola is like, okay, fine. Yes, yes, and yes, right? So he goes to Brando. Goes to his house. Yeah, goes to his house and says, listen, Mr. Brando, you're the only one who can pull this off. We got to have you. Oh, and uh, I have to do some uh, like special effects type of things. They just want to see how, you know, the costume and, you know, how your voice is going to be. It's not a screen test or anything. (laughs) Don't worry about that. Anything but a screen test. And so he sort of tricks Brando into doing, you know, and so Brando does his, you know, he's like, I think he's going to look like a bulldog. 
Yeah. And so he puts cotton balls in his jowls. Yeah. Now, Brando, Brando's only 47 years old this time. It's, he looks like this old man in the movie, but he's only 47. He's got long blonde hair. Like when a he, ponytail. Yeah, in a ponytail when he shows up. And so when he starts when he starts trying to feel out this character, he pulls the ponytail, pulls the blonde hair back, and starts putting shoe polish in his hair to give him the Italian black hair. Yep. And then that's when he puts the cotton balls in his jowls and he starts to work with his voice a little bit. He had read the book and he had seen that Don Corleone had had a throat injury. And so he's like, he's probably, probably talks like this. In the real congressional hearings where they had the mobsters come in, yeah. one of the guys actually talked like Don Corleone. That guy's name is Frank Costello. Thank you. Yeah. Saw him talking or, you know, whispering yeah. during the, the hearings in 1951 and emulated his husky voice. Yeah, only he didn't say any words. He just went, If it should be struck by lightning, that I will not forgive. And so he transforms in front of these handheld video cameras that Francis Ford Coppola has brought with him. Francis takes these tapes and he goes to Gulf and Western, which is... You know, like I said, Bluthorn, the Swedish guy. Right. You know. The guys who know nothing about making movies. Right. So he, in the lobby there, sets up the a TV so that he can show these tapes that he's made of Brando. And Bluthorn has no idea what's coming. He just knocks on the door and Bluthorn's like, Oh, Francis, come in. You know, I can't do a Swedish accent. Yeah, no, probably not that. <laughs> But he's but he's like, hey, come out here. I'd like to show you something. And he turns on the video, and it's Brando with his blonde hair. And Bluthorn is like, what? No, no, we are not having Brando. No. And he's like, oh my gosh. And he's watching him transform. He goes, that is amazing. Okay, he can be the Godfather. Wow, that's awesome. So they've got Brando, and actually, Brando won it over. Uh, Olivier said he was sick, couldn't do it. Yeah. Which that's, I think that's kind of who they initially, like the studio really was after. And then it came down to George C. Scott, which had worked with Francis Ford Coppola on Patton. Right. Ernest Borgnine and Marlon Brando. That's a different movie with Ernest Borgnine as the (laughs) the Don Vito. Yeah. Then they wanted to hire Al Pacino. You talked a little bit about that as Michael Corleone. Yep. He was an unknown. Francis Ford Coppola literally called up Al Pacino, Bobby Duvall, and James Caan and said, hey, can you guys just come down here and let's just play around with this and see what happens? Yeah. So I love this story. So he gets gets them to do this little screen test. They come and they visit and they sit around. And James Caan says that they did it all for about the price of four corned beef sandwiches. Right. They got fed. That was their pay for the day was that they got fed. And they got to sit at a table and they got to act out like in character who the, the brothers were. Yeah. Very minor, very cheap, very easy. And the studio's like, no, we want you to do some real screen tests with real actors. Right. So they brought in Robert De Niro. Well, for, they brought in Martin Sheen. Yes, they brought in Jack Nicholson, Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, Warren Beatty, Ryan O'Neill, and like you said, Martin Sheen. One guy at the studio wanted Charles Bronson. Wow. Okay. Yep. Oh, and here's the other name they came up with: Burt Reynolds. <laughs> wow. Burt Reynolds and and Marlon Brando said, "If you hire Burt Reynolds, I'm out." <laughs> which is funny. He didn't think he was a very good actor, which, you know. Well, and what's hilarious is Al Ruddy ends up working with 
Burt Reynolds making Cannonball Run. Cannonball Run, one of our favorite movies. Al Ruddy is the guy on the camel. <laughs> this tall Jewish guy is playing an Arab. Yeah, Jamie Farr's uh, camel guy. Yes. That was six Lamburgers, four shish kebabs, a side order of couscous, and two milk. Apparently, Burt Reynolds had been in an episode of The Twilight Zone, and he had in some way emulated Marlon Brando's mannerisms, uh. and Brando was pissed. What is the question? I mean, like any slob can walk through a door. I mean, like I do it every day. But, uh, well, now, maybe I shouldn't walk through the door at that moment. So I got to ask myself, would I walk through that door? It's on the basis of that answer that I find my motivation. So the question is, what's my motivation? Oh. He's like, you hire Burt Reynolds, I'm out. Wow. Okay. It's interesting because in the book, he's described, the character of Michael is described as a taller, blonde guy. He does not look Italian, which is interesting for the character himself and interesting for, I guess, how probably a whole lot of the people were picturing him who had read the book, including the producers. But after all of these screen tests, what, I think they spent like $400,000 on screen tests? Yeah. They got all these guys for the price of four corned beef sandwiches. Same three guys that had come down that first day. Yeah. So they hired James Conn to be Sonny. Yes. Santino. Hey, listen, do me a favor, Conn. No more advice on how to patch things up. Just help me win, please. All right? Yep. Um... They looked at Anthony Perkins, flashback to our Psycho episode. Wow, okay. But they really wanted James Conn all along. In fact, they actually tried him at Sonny. They tried him at Michael. At Michael. Yeah. And they tried him at Tom Hagen. Oh, wow, okay. By the way, James Conn, not Italian. No. No. He's Jewish. Yes, he is. They had hired Diane Keaton to play Kay Corleone. Yes. And she had worked and done plays and stuff with Al Pacino. And she was testing with these guys, uh-huh. and they went to her, and they're like, who do you want? And like, who, who, who's your... And she's like, Al, without a doubt. Al. Right. And there was another lady who was very important to the decision-making process on Al Pacino. It was the lady who edited all of those screen tests together. It was George Lucas's wife. That's right, Marsha Lucas. Marsha Lucas, who, by the way, saved Star Wars with her editing skills. Okay. Saved it. Yes, so she's there before long. You know, this is this is at least five or six years before Star Wars. She is there. She is doing the editing for these screen tests, and she says it needs to be Al Pacino because he undresses you with his eyes. Love that. We're going to talk about Star Wars later this year. It's forty-five years this year, ladies and gentlemen. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. All right. So you mentioned that they hired Robert Duvall to be Tom Hagen. This is business, not personal. They shot my father. Even the shooting of your father was business, not personal, Sonny. Listen to this list of what ifs, Tom Hagen. Okay. Bobby Duvall was awesome. Like, that's my favorite character, Tom Hagen. Wow. Okay. Jerry Van Dyke, Bruce Dern, Steve McQueen, Paul Newman. But this is the one that gets me. Elvis Presley wanted to play Tom Hagen. Elvis as the consigliere. Yeah. Okay. How about that? Interesting. Very interesting, right? And then you have Fredo. Fred Roos was... A guy in charge of casting, he saw John Cazale in an off-Broadway play called Life. He said, we were looking for Fredo. We didn't know who John Cazale was. Yeah. But when they saw that play, they're like, that's Fredo. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. 
Yeah, and he looks like a member of the family. I don't know how, I don't know why, but for some reason, he looks like he belongs to that family, even though I couldn't say that he looks like any of those guys. It's just like somehow he fits. It's incredible how subtle he is as the weaker, you know, more deferent brother. It takes some chops to be a weak character who wants to be a strong person. That's that ain't the way I want it, Mike! <laughs> <laughs> And then let's talk real quickly about Johnny Fontaine, okay? Okay. Johnny Fontaine was played by Al Martino. Yes. Okay? Yep. Now. He had a hit. Al Martino had a hit in the 50s. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I'm sorry. 52. Well, so many people think that this character is based on Frank Sinatra. Right. In, in terms of his role with the movie From Here to Eternity. Right. In fact, Frank Sinatra saw Mario Puzo at a restaurant and cussed him out. Sure. Except that it's not based on Frank Sinatra, at least not directly. Well, right. It's based on the actor that played Johnny Fontaine. Al Martino was a singer in the nightclub. Like you said, you had a hit, a hit, and then he lost the part. Coppola came in and said, no, we don't want this guy. Get him out of here. We want Vic Damone. And then Martino, who had mafia dealings, went to a crime boss and said, hey, they just fired me. And they're like, no, this is not something that will pass. So they have to go and go back to Coppola, and they're like, he is your man, they, and that's it. They made him an offer he could not refuse. <laughs> you know that head of the horse in your bed? So he had had a hit in the 50s with, with three singles, and they all hit the top 40, but his success attracted the attention of the Mafia. And the Mafia bought out Martino's management contract and ordered him to pay a $75,000 safeguard for their investment. So he's got these ties to the Mafia, which is how he gets this part in this movie. So no, Mario Puzo probably did not base it upon him. He just made his life mirror that of Johnny Fontaine. That's incredible. According to behind-the-scenes stories, Marlon Brando wanted Al Martino fired and said so to his face. This guy acts like a wooden board. you got to get him out of here. And Al Martino says, you say that again, I'm going to mess you up. And Brando's like, see, that's the type of acting we need right there. <laughs> <laughs> and so he kept his part. Okay, two more people I want to talk about really quick. Yeah. Simonetta Stefanelli. This is... Michael's beautiful Italian wife. Yeah. The girl he goes across Sicily. She's the babe of the village. And he marries this girl. Uh-huh. And boy. She was 16. No way. 16, my friend. 16 years old. <laughs> yes. You're the, killing me right now. Yes. She's beautiful. She was beautiful. And that was it. I told you about that Bible that Coppola had made out of the novel. That was a big part of it. It's like she has got to melt the heart of every man in the theater. And they did a great job with that. But 16. That's crazy. Yeah. Moving on. Moving on. No more talk about her. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. She only she shows up for about 20 minutes and then gets blown up. I know English. A Monday, Tuesday, Sunday, Wednesday. <laughs> She's also a good driver. <laughs> And lastly, I want to talk about Talia Shire. That, Francis Ford Coppola's sister. I, that blew me away. She's great. She's Adrian! I know, I know. But that didn't happen for a couple of years, right? That was Rocky was 76, 70, yeah. 76, okay. 
But the, yeah, she did a fantastic job. You can say, oh, she got the part, because but he does that. I mean, he puts his family in the movies, and he even says, yeah, I like to do it, because it's kind of like a thing I can go back to, and hey, remember when? By the way, another family member appears in The Godfather. Her name is Sophia Coppola. She's the baby at the christening. She is the baby at the christening. She actually then grows up to be in Godfather 3, and I think now she's just... She's All a director. director. Yeah, she's a director, and she's had some great, great success. The Lost in Translation and yep. other stuff. It's, she makes fantastic movies. She doesn't act as much anymore. Let's switch to Godfather Part 2 for okay. casting. All okay. right? So you have everybody from Godfather Part 1. Yep. Except Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando is a no. He Well, he was a yes until like they're like, well, where's Marlon? Right. For the very last scene of the movie... Everybody showed back up, right? You had James Caan, who had died in the first one. You've got um, Bobby Bobby Duvall, Fredo, Al Pacino. Pacino. All of those guys are there. And it was supposed to be a birthday celebration for Vito Corleone. And Brando was supposed to show up. And he did it. And so that's why you have this scene at the end of the movie where everyone's there. They're all talking. He's Michael's talking about how he joined the army. Sonny's all upset. And it's this great scene where you start off with all of them there at the table. And then because he had to rewrite the scene without Marlon Brando in it, everyone at the table gets up and leaves to go to say happy birthday to Don Vito Corleone, leaving only Michael all alone. Which I talk about those accidental drips, the magic moments. Had Brando showed up, you would not have had that ending. And that ending is an allegory to all of Michael's life. All right, so other casting for Godfather Part Two. You had to bring in Michael Gotzo to play Frankie Five Angels. Right. Michael, are you sitting high up in the Sierra Mountains and you're drinking, uh, what's he drinking? Champagne. Champagne, champagne cocktail. And you're passing judgment on how I run my thing. That was supposed to be Clemenza. Yeah, it was supposed to be Clemenza. If you don't, if you'd spend a minute since you've seen The Godfather, Clemenza is the big heavy guy who teaches Michael how to properly cook some pasta, a little sugar, a little wine. And he's also the guy who says, leave the gun, take the cannoli, which was an ad lib line. He... Doesn't make it into the second one. He was supposed to play the the Frankie Pentangeli part. It was supposed to be Clemenza is the traitor. Who he was, was supposed, supposed to, to be the traitor. That's right. Yeah, he's supposed to testify against the Corleone family, right? So Clemenza is played by Richard Castellano. He had lost a lot of weight and didn't want to have to gain it back. And he also wanted a lot more money. And he was, I think he was like the highest paid actor. I'm not sure why, but he was the highest paid actor in The Godfather 1. And he felt like he wasn't getting enough for Godfather 2. Well, okay, we can make your character somebody else. And so they write him off as died of a heart attack, but not really. Right. That that whole thing was kind of weird. But I, I think that when he doesn't show up, you've got to doctor the script to make this work. But it worked. It worked. So they bring in Frankie Five Angels, yep. and he becomes this valuable member of the family. Michael Gotso plays him, okay? You have Bruno Kirby of When Harry Met Sally and City Slickers fame. Good morning, Vietnam. This comes off. I was just trying to be funny. Funny is good. Yeah. Funny is good. But then do it by using comedy and humor, not police action and coffee remarks. He plays young Clemenza. Yes. And actually, one of the reasons why he did not come back for City Slickers Part 2 
because he was irritated at Billy Crystal, like directing him. On how to act. On how to act. He's like, what are you talking about? I've worked with De Niro. I've worked with Coppola. Dude, you don't tell me how to act. That's why he's not in City Slickers Part 2. You have Lee Strasberg, who plays Hyman Roth. And I said to myself, this is the business we've chosen. I didn't ask who gave the order because it had nothing to do with business. This is interesting. Lee Strasberg, I'm a theater major. My bachelor's is in theater. Okay. His method is a huge part of what we study in the theater program. He was pivotal in training all of these guys, like all of the famous actors. Pivotal in Marlon Brando's training, pivotal in Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. All of those guys studied under Strasberg, Stella Adler, Eli Kazan, those guys. Eli Kazan was who they wanted to play the part of Hyman Roth in this movie, but he turned it down. But here's the here's the interesting story, interesting tidbit about that. You know how when Strasberg is playing the part of Roth, there's one scene where he's doing it, he's got no shirt on. I mean, this yeah. is an old man with gray, hairy chest, no shirt. Yeah. So the reason that they put that scene in there is whenever Francis Ford Coppola went to Eli Kazan to talk to him about playing this part, Eli Kazan shows up with no shirt on. <laughs> Come Again, on in, old fellas. Man. Yeah, we're just, so he has the whole interview about playing this part with him, and he's got no shirt on. And he's like, well, I didn't get the actor, but I love that moment. We're going to make it a part of the movie. That's, a, that's awesome. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to mention for Hyman Roth, they wanted Peter Sellers. Now, that's a different movie. Yeah. That's... Inspector freaking Clouseau. I did not know the bank was being robbed because I was engaged in my sworn duty as a police officer. Yeah, I mean... Peter Sellers is an amazing actor. He that is. It would have been interesting to see what he did with it, but I, uh, yeah, gosh. How about that? That'd be crazy. Okay, so one other guy that I want to talk about is Troy Donahue. Troy Donahue, the part of Merle Johnson. <laughs> the anticipation is I overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> Troy Donahue plays the part of Merle Johnson. Troy- I don't know this Merle. <laughs> I don't know what he does. I don't know what he lives on. <laughs> Do not marry this man. Break it off. <laughs> Here's the interesting thing about that. Troy Donahue is this like heartthrob from the 50s who did surfer movies and stuff like that. Yeah. He's playing the part of Merle Johnson. Troy Donahue's real name is Merle Johnson. Yeah. If you get a poster on your wall and the name on the bottom is Troy Donahue, that's something to behold. And if it's Merle Johnson, you're like, <laughs> is he a country singer? What is this? <laughs> that part, they looked at Sonny Bono playing that part. Uh, okay. But here's the thing. I mentioned, I texted you this week. Yeah. Troy Donahue gets this incredible shout out in a very popular song. Okay. You got it? Yeah, let's hear it. Look at me. I'm Sandra D. from <laughs> Greece. As for you, Troy Donahue, I know what you want to do. You got your. It's incredible. Keep your filthy paws off my drawers. <laughs> Off my silky drive. Would you try that crap with a net? Troy Donahue, ladies and gentlemen, makes a reappearance in Greece. Okay, we can't leave out Sterling Hating. He plays the police chief, Captain McCluskey. Beats the crap out of Michael. Yeah. And then gets the Breaks bullet. his jaw. Oh, my best death scene. Wow, it was such a good... That's such a good death scene. He had been in a lot of those old movies as well, including Dr. Strangelove with Peter Sellers. 
He's the guy who gets shot in the throat. Let's dive into that scene for just a second, okay? Well, one more actor, one more. Gotta throw it again to David Wright and Def Dave, as you may know him. We can't forget Abe Vigoda. <laughs> Abe Vigoda. Abe Vigoda plays Tessio, a very important part of the movie, so let's not forget him. He ends up on Barney Miller and Beastie Boy albums. (laughs) (laughs) The guy who plays Mo Green, I think, was Joe's dad on Facts of Life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Alex Rocco. Alex Rocco. Mo Green. Mo Green. I didn't ask. It was business. Okay, D, this week our Shirley Showcase is the Vintage Video Pod. They go through every movie year by year. It's really awesome for a completist like me. And they just went through what we consider the greatest two weeks in 80s movie history, that middle part of June of 1981. Greatest two weeks in movie history. I mean, there's so many great oh. movies that came out in that two-week period. You got Raiders of the Lost Ark. You got Superman 2. You've got The Great Muppet Caper. Great Muppet Caper. Stripes. There's just a Cannibal slew. Run. I mean, icons all coming out in two weeks. Their host, Patrick, weighed in. And here's what he had to say about Godfather, Godfather the two and goodfellas hey this is patrick o'reilly from the vintage video podcast and i'm here for a three-way comparison of godfather godfather 2 and goodfellas this is a tough one coppola and scorsese are obviously masters of the crime family genre so ultimately it's going to come down to personal taste i think if it were simply a coppola scorsese contest i think scorsese's been winning that handily by consistently producing celebrated works Coppola's obviously still working, gearing up now to self-produce the long-gestating Megalopolis, presumably through his own American Zoetrope label, but outside of his winery, I think you'd have to go back to the early 80s for the last Coppola film to earn near-universal praise, where Scorsese is an annual front-row seat holder at the Oscars. Obviously, all three films are technically adaptations, with Godfathers 1 and 2 coming from a single Mario Puzo novel and Goodfellas coming from Nicholas Pileggi's Wise Guy, but I think the successes of all three films is as much owed to the directors as the source material. Especially Godfather 2, which is widely acclaimed as the best installment of the trilogy, but which is sort of cobbled together from unused parts of the first Godfather novel since the second book, The Sicilian, wouldn't be published until 1984. Another difference between the franchises is that Goodfellas basically takes place in a localized area, like just several blocks of the city, where the events of the Godfather film span the entire U.S. and sometimes internationally. I love Goodfellas, and I've rewatched it many times, but not nearly as many times as I find myself coming back to the Godfathers. And specifically the first Godfather, which I think I had memorized for a time. The production is so steeped in lore that it's obviously inspired dueling behind-the-scenes fictionalizations in the form of the Paramount Plus series The Offer, and Barry Levinson's upcoming film, Francis and the Godfather, where I think Jake Gyllenhaal is supposed to be playing Robert Evans, which sounds worth the price of admission to me. Forced at gunpoint to choose a favorite, I think I land against the grain on the first Godfather film, if only because of the simplicity of the plot and just the magic of those performances. It's a perfectly crafted story. It's a relatable family in crisis. It also, for better or worse, really humanized the real-life people behind the whole mafia mythology, although the filmmakers famously avoided specifically mentioning the mafia. We also kill so many characters in that first installment that seem indispensable to the recipe, but clearly the second film did well without them. But purely nostalgically, I don't think anything beats the first few notes of Nino Rota's Godfather Waltz over the Paramount logo. You just settle in and you're ready for the movie. I think Godfather 1 is still the first of the three that I'd be tempted to put on right now, and it's the one I expect to rewatch the most moving forward. Wow, that was 
Awesome. Like that was intimidating. Awesome. That was so good. So what's the name of this podcast again? Vintage Video Pod. I'm subscribing to that podcast. I want to listen to what this guy has to say about every single movie from 1981. Yeah, they do a really good job. Really professionally done. Voices are great. Very entertaining. Definitely want to check them out. Thank you, Patrick, very much for doing that for us. Great take. We will give you our take on our next episode next week. So be sure and come back next week. We're going to finish up godfather godfather part two and goodfellas and we will give you our final judgment between those three movies exactly leave the gun take the cannoli hit subscribe on your podcast app (laughs) see you next week (laughs) bye guys